Hi, and welcome to Tea and Strumpets, a Regency Romance Review. I'm Zoe. And I'm Kelsey. And Kelsey, this is the first of our Pride Month episodes. I'm so excited. I know you're excited. Um, So before we like jumped into the book today, I wanted to ask you like, why is Pride important for you to celebrate? I think it's important for anyone to celebrate Pride because the idea is like, you shouldn't have to hide who you are. You shouldn't have to Mm -hmm. be in a dark closet. You shouldn't have to be alone. You should be happy and people should love your love regardless of who it's with and regardless of where it takes you because the reality is it's not my place to interfere with your journey. So for me to lift (laughs) you up and to celebrate you and what you want to do, like, hallelujah, that's what this world is meant to be about. Yeah, I feel like I, I totally agree. And I also feel like you'll probably agree with me when I say like, I feel like pride is a time when I can actually put some of my beliefs into practice, mm-hmm. when I can actually physically show support for something I believe in, rather than just parroting support, like saying, oh, I support this thing, but actually being able to go out and and support it because because it's really important to back up your beliefs with as much activity as you can. As, and, and so mm-hmm. if you are physically or financially able to do things like that, or you have a platform in any way, like you can use those to celebrate the things that you believe in. So yeah. Have you, have you done much celebrating in the past? Uh, no, because I have this problem where I work on the weekends Oh, no. So, like, it's always inhibited me from celebrating and going to Pride. Like, I've always wanted to. Because you're in San Francisco, in San Francisco, so there's some major Pride There's major things happening on, but it's just – it never ends up working out where I can end up going. And, of course, this year would have been a great year. Yeah. And, of course, <laughs> wah, wah, didn't happen. Yes. However, I did feel very good today because I have a pair – like, I ride horses. I wear knee socks. And I like to express myself through my knee socks. And so I feel like it was very appropriate today. I was wearing my rainbow heart socks. And they have big giant rainbow hearts everywhere. And I was like, this is very appropriate for today. (laughs) Well, I wanted to tell one little story about my past and the celebration that I did that was special to me. Um, So I lived in Israel, in Tel Aviv for two years uh, recently. I moved back about two years ago. And Pride is really, really, really big in Tel Aviv. And the whole city is already kind of rainbow colored. It's right situated on the Mediterranean. And it's just a very bright, colorful city. In fact, one of the main hotels on the beach is uh, made with rainbow mosaics. Mm-hmm. So when you look at pictures of the Tel Aviv beach, it's just – it's already a rainbow. But the the gay community in Tel Aviv is, is really strong. And um, every year for Pride, they have a parade. And the parade is huge. It's a huge mark of tourism. Sadly, you know, it's obviously not happening this year either. But it's a huge, huge, huge uh, time for tourism. And the the year that I'm talking about that I got to participate in it, there were 200,000 people there for that. So, I mean, like, it's big. It's it's awesome. And so what we did is we went to the – I had some friends who were in another city, um, and they wanted to come in for Pride. So they stayed at our house, and we got up early, and we got shakshuka for breakfast at my favorite place to get shakshuka. <laughs> and they gave us these, like, pink chesarim, which is shots, chasers. <laughs> and um, it was just like, you know, the spirit was there. There's also the, – the city is full of rainbow flags for, for Pride Month. And um, so then we went to this park where everyone was assembling. And as a herd, I mean, thousands of us walked from this park to the beach. So it was probably like a 30, 45-minute walk because it was slow. And there were people on balconies with hoses, you know, spraying <laughs> us down because it's so hot. And there were just – everyone was just marching and there was music and there was happiness. And we like stopped to get a beer and we stopped to get an iced coffee. <laughs> <laughs> and then at the end, you literally like walk out straight from the street onto the beach and into the ocean. And like from there, that is where the parade actually starts. But that's where they get all the people to come to the parade. And so then the parade goes along the Mediterranean and with all the floats and the excitement and you can cool yourself off by standing in the Mediterranean. I mean, it was just – it's magical. And to share it with friends – it was such a really cool experience to have. And I I really was so grateful I got to participate in that while I was there. I'm so jealous. I want to go do that like 
right now. <laughs> I know. I know. I I actually um, really am feeling that travel fever right now, but I know I'm not the only one. But something else I wanted to bring up is that our friends at the Big Gay Fiction Podcast are also having a Pride event, and we wanted to tell you guys all about it. So I'm going to read from their announcement here, which says, quote, in a year when Pride celebrations are postponed or canceled, the Big Gay Fiction Podcast is spreading a little bit of feel-good rainbow joy with special bonus programming throughout the month of June. Quote, finding new ways to celebrate Pride during these unique and difficult times is undoubtedly a challenge, but it is one that we can undertake with passion, creativity, and an open heart, said Will Knaus, co-host of the podcast. This year, whether you celebrate with friends or by yourself, we hope that you'll consider us a part of your year-round Pride family. So in addition to their regular five Monday episodes debuting in June, listeners can expect 15 special mini episodes. Quote, it will be like a pride-themed literary festival, but digital and available to listen to whenever it is most convenient for you, said co-host Jeff Adams. We're excited to welcome authors, narrators, and other special guests for these bonus segments. So you guys should all check that out because doesn't that sound fun? Absolutely. It does sound fun. And those guys are just awesome and we love them. Yes. So now let's get into our first book for Pride Month, the book we are talking about today. Yes. So the book we're talking about today is The Lady's Guide to Celestial Mechanics by Olivia Waite. Woo. So we have an author fact this week, and it's going to be short. And I'm going to spill the beans and tell you why. That's <laughs> uh, because Olivia is going to be joining us later this month on the podcast. So we're going to read you a very short snippet uh, of her bio, but you'll hear a lot more from her later this month. So surprise. Yeah. <laughs> so Olivia Waite writes historical romance, fantasy, and science fiction. She is also the monthly romance columnist of the Seattle Review of Books, where she writes reviews of romances old and new and thoughtful essays on the genre's history and future. She sure does. Yes. And if you go to her website, you can check them all out. And today, because this is our first episode for Pride, I want to talk to you a little bit more about the history of Pride Month. And I'm gathering my facts from the Encyclopedia Britannica. So if you have issues with what I'm saying, consult the encyclopedia. <laughs> and let us know. Um, we're happy yes. to. Yes, let us know. However, <laughs> I'm trying to get it from the most like sought after source I can. Sorry, guys. Yes, we try real hard to make sure that we're getting things from good sources. Yes. So Pride Month commemorates years of struggle for civil rights and the ongoing pursuit of equal justice under the law for the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer community, as well as the accomplishments of LGBTQ individuals. The event that catalyzed the gay rights movement came in June 1969 in New York City's Greenwich Village at the Stonewall Inn. In the early morning hours of June 28th, police raided this popular gathering place for young gay men, lesbians, bisexuals, and transgender people, arresting the employees for selling liquor without a license, roughing up many of the patrons, and clearing the bar. Outside, the crowd that watched the bar's patrons being herded into police vans became enraged. Whereas previous witnesses to police harassment of the members of the LGBTQ community had stood by passively, this time the crowd jeered the police and threw coins and debris at them, forcing the police to barricade themselves in the bar to await backup. Meanwhile, some 400 people rioted. Although police reinforcements dispersed the crowds, Riots waned and waxed outside the bar for the next five days, and these Stonewall riots, also called the Stonewall Uprising, provided the spark that ignited the gay rights movement in the United States. At the Eastern Regional Conference of Homophile Organizations in Philadelphia on November 2, 1969, the idea of a march in response to the Stonewall events was proposed. Scheduled for June 28, 1970, the first anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, the march was named the Christopher Street Liberation Day March after the street that was the epicenter of New York City's gay community and from which the procession originated. Although gay power had been proposed as a slogan for the march, it was argued that the movement had yet to be politically empowered, but that its members felt great pride in their sexual identity. Thus, it was decided that the march's theme would be gay pride. Sources differ as to the exact number of people who ultimately participated in the march, estimates range from 1,000 to 20,000. 
but no one disputes that at the start, there were at most a few hundred marchers. Later, however, by the time the march ended 51 blocks north in Central Park's Sheep Meadow, its numbers had swelled dramatically as individuals joined the procession en route in solidarity, chanting, Say it clear, say it loud. Gay is good. Gay is proud. Aw, that is wonderful to hear the origins, um, even though they stem from something that was a dark time. It's really nice when a little bit of lightness comes out of the dark, right? Absolutely. And I mean, I hate to say it, but I was only like made aware of the Stonewall riots not that long ago, thanks to another oh. podcast I listened to. And I was granted a group on the West Coast, but like I was just shocked to hear about it. And I was like, what? Why am I not being taught this with all the other yeah. civil rights movements that are going on? This is just as big. So absolutely. Yeah, great question. I mean, super legitimate. So I think, though, it's time to get into the book for today, which, as we said, is the Lady's Guide to Celestial Mechanics and the Main Tropes. So I see in our notes here, Kelsey, that you've written, I need help identifying a main trope. I <laughs> I feel you there. I was like, oh, yeah, okay, I can do this. Um, I don't know. Uh, you've written friends to lovers, question mark, B business turned pleasure, question mark. I mean, there was like I mean, a slight misunderstanding-ish thrown it was in. very – yeah. But the, 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 the age gap, there's 10 years between them? I don't know. I, I mean, don't know. Honestly, listeners, like are we missing something? Let us know what you think the main trope of this is. We would love to know yes, uh, if you me. guys <laughs> – I think that we're we're missing it here. Um, but regardless, our main characters are Lucy Michelney and Catherine St. Day, the Countess of Moth. So shall we get into our synopsis? We shall. Lucy Michelney, the daughter of recent deceased astronomer Albert Michelney, is currently at the wedding of her former lover, Priscilla. Well, this would be a sad day no matter what, the day is an extra break in Lucy's heart because Pris never even told her she was getting married. Lucy found out when the bans were read at church. Ouch. Ugh. And then when she confronted Pris about the bans, she got a very clinical answer about not wanting to end up alone. Quote, you aren't alone. You have me. I know, Pris said, but Lucy, I can't marry you. My grandmother's trust only becomes mine upon marriage. I have to think about how I'm going to live. As she sits in the church watching the ceremony, Lucy is looking for any hint that Pris is as heartbroken as she is, but Pris never even looks her way, despite her being in the front row. Lucy's life is further complicated when she arrives home from the wedding with her brother, telling her that they should just sell their father's telescope. Despite the fact that Lucy has played a major part in all of their father's major calculations in the last few years, quote, the late Albert Michelney might have been the name best known to the world, but it was his daughter's gift for mathematics that had fleshed out his astronomical theories with positive proof. Completely at a loss of what to do without Pris, and with her brother threatening to take away her ability for astronomical research, Lucy comes across a letter from the Countess of Moth. Now, the Countess of Moth was an avid correspondent with Lucy's father on behalf of her astronomer husband. They had traveled all around the world, sending data sheets collected on their travels to Lucy and her father to add into their calculations. However, since her husband's death, the need for correspondence had also died. The letter contains her condolences and asks if Lucy might have any recommendations on who would be willing to undertake the challenge of translating the first volume in M. Oleron's Mécanique Celeste into English. Lucy at first is disappointed to have missed the opportunity to be involved with an undertaking of such magnitude. After all, she knows the importance of Oleron's work. But the more she thinks about it, the more she realizes that she is in fact the best person to undertake the task. After all, she worked closely with her father for years. She understands and can compute the maths. Plus, she happens to be fluent in French. Quote, Lucy was going to translate Oleron if she could persuade the Countess to agree to it. And again, Lucy is fluent in French. Kelsey and I are not. <laughs> so no. sorry if we are mispronouncing Oleron, but uh, just may just chalk that up to our clumsy American accents. <laughs> <laughs> 
So in London, Catherine St. Day is trying to figure out what to do with her time. She feels she needs some kind of vocation. While she may have traveled the world with her husband, she was most cast in the role of secretary and general helpmate. Their marriage was not the happiest, as George's main passion was trying to make a name for himself in the field of astronomy. This passion took them around the world on his quest, but he could be volatile if he felt Catherine was not helping him as she should. Quote, Really, she was so glad not to have to be a wife anymore. She just wished the duties required of a widow were a little more clear-cut. That's all. It was doing her no good to linger at the crossroads. She wanted to be moving. She just didn't know which path was the correct one. Enter Lucy, who has placed herself on Catherine's doorstep and is requesting her to put her name forward with the Polite Science Society, who is financing the translation of Oleron for their fellows. I'm sorry, but if your name is the Polite Science Society, like that to me is like foreshadowing that you are not going to be polite. Uh, for sure. For <laughs> sure. <laughs> so Catherine is hesitant to offer Lucy her support. After all, Lucy is untried in this type of environment. And while she knows there are women who help men of the society, no woman has ever been at the forefront of a project. Lucy, seeing this, tells Catherine that if she will not help her, she'll go to the president of the society and speak with him directly. Now, Catherine sees something in Lucy she's very familiar with. The girl is ambitious. Quote, you couldn't reason with ambition. All you could do was moderate the damage it did. Try to get ahead of it. Imagine problems before they started. Smooth out the road for the impractical person with their gaze on the heavens. So seeing this trend, Catherine relents and allows Lucy to stay with her until the society meets for dinner at the end of the week. She will present Lucy as a candidate there, but Lucy should pre be prepared for everyone to question her aptitude for the position. In the meantime, Lucy and Catherine take up residence together, and both women are intrigued by the other. Lucy has always known she's preferred women to men. Her own brother, Stephen, is an artist, and therefore she has met men and women who prefer their own gender. Catherine, on the other hand, has only felt similarly once, and has always repressed that line of thought. After all, she was married for over a dozen years and always remained faithful to her husband, even after he stopped sharing his bed with her. Catherine is also very cautious of Lucy because she's very similar to her late husband, and he let ambition for greatness in the sciences rule his life. He was more often than not unpleasant, and that has made Catherine much more apprehensive about being involved with someone of a similar bend. Catherine is having lots of internal dialogue, and Lucy is beginning her translation of Oleron to bring to the dinner. It is just at its beginning stages, but Lucy does not feel right about it. It needs something more. Looking at Catherine one day, Lucy has an inspiration. Quote, Her project crystallized in an instant. Lucy wasn't going to merely translate Oleron's word from French into English. She was going to make Oleron's importance apparent to everyone, astronomers and amateurs alike. She was going to write an introduction to astronomy for Lady Moth. She believes that the discord and distrust in Catherine to Lucy as an astronomer stems from her lack of understanding on the subject. Since this work is meant to be a complete work of astronomy to date, it makes sense to have the translation not only be for scholars who can understand the maths, but also for it to be for anyone who wishes to know and understand the subject. The night of the dinner comes and everything is going well until it is time for them to name those who are to undertake the translation. One of them is Mr. Frampton, a brilliant mathematician who is brought in by Mr. Hawley, the president of the society. His mother was from Santa Dominica, and so it seems there is some type of progressive attitude at the table. The other is Mr. Will Willby, the nephew of another prominent member of the club. He hasn't really done anything, and you immediately know he's not going to be helpful in this book. He is there and will be always be there based on his family, not his own merits. Yeah. He's skeezy right from the get-go. Mm -hmm. Anywho, Catherine is at the dinner because she is putting up half the money for the translation. She's hoping this will give Lucy the added weight in her favor. Now, as you can imagine, when Catherine puts Lucy forward, it is immediately scoffed at. But it was then taken further. Mr. Willoughby says truly the most awful thing. <laughs> which we're including because you need to be as offended by the patriarchal nonsense as we were. Quote, <laughs> Mr. Wilby leaned forward. 
But let us go about it scientifically, he said, his expression eager as a puppy on a new scent. We must start not with assumptions, but with the fundamental questions. Several points need to be clearly determined at the onset. First, whether women are capable of astronomy. Second, whether they would offer any particular benefit to astronomy. Third, whether astronomy would be of any use or benefit to women. Fourth, whether it would harm the needs of mankind to encourage women to put their efforts towards science rather than the continuation of the species. Mr. Chattenden nodded. That is a proper scientific line of inquiry, Mr. Wilby. Aunt Kelmarsh looked nauseated. Miss Michelney reeled back as though she'd been slapped. Oh my god, I'm so mad. <laughs> I feel incensed for sure. I, I'm just like, oh, especially that third one, whether astronomy would be of any use or benefit to women. Like, fuck that line of thinking. Oh my oh, god. I, it's just like, oh, but are women better for anything other than to perpetuate the species? F ugh. off. But like... I know we normally talk about the book later, but like good on Olivia Waite for like making us feel this in this moment. Oh, so oh, oh, I was so <laughs> incensed when I read this. So incensed. So I mean, just, just you reading it out loud. Oh, my blood pressure rose. Okay. <laughs> so we must get through the synopsis. So when Catherine protests that Mr. Wilby is questioning far more than Lucy's qualifications for doing the translation, we are hit with this gem by the president himself. Quote, oh, no. Yeah, it gets better. Uh, he says, yeah, he says the word that every woman hates to hear. <laughs> My dear countess, you must know you are being unreasonable. While Catherine choked on shock and outrage, he turned to Miss Michelney, putting a hand on her wrist and gripping it with earnest entreaty. Please do not think I disparage your eagerness to help, my dear girl. It is only that, as men of science, we must uphold certain standards if our work is to be accorded its proper value in the community. You understand, of course. <laughs> ah! Ugh! Patronizing oh! bullshit! <laughs> Okay. <laughs> After this, Catherine, as calm and collected as can be, informs the entire dinner that due to this opinion of the society, she is withdrawing her financial support. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she and Lucy leave with dignity, but once they reach the carriage, Catherine shows her fury. Quote, I had expected them to grapple with you about mathematical formulas or how you interpreted your French verb tenses. They have these sorts of arguments constantly. I thought they might question your expertise. Yes. I never thought they might question your existence. Oh, thank goodness. Thank goodness we have this the wonderful ladies to balance this oh. out. So, whew. Catherine then tells Lucy that she will finance her translation and take over all the printing costs herself. This just means they had better do it quickly in order to make sure that it is done before the society finishes their translation. So for two weeks, Lucy diligently begins her translation. Catherine and she are, quote, orbiting each other like a double star. So not a whole lot happens. However, once Lucy finishes the introduction, she asks Catherine to take a look explaining that she expanded the text so that anyone who was interested would be able to understand a bit of the more complex theories. Catherine thinks the idea is very kind, but once she starts reading, she is amazed. Lucy has managed to open up the world for her in a way she never knew possible, and her earlier, more intimate thoughts regarding Lucy returned fully. Quote, Falling in love with a genius was a daunting thought. At once, Catherine brought herself to heal. Nobody had said anything about love. And anyway, Lucy didn't want a lover. After this revelation, Lucy and Catherine receive an invitation to have tea with Aunt Kelmarsh, a great friend of Catherine's mother and also a witness to that awful society dinner. At tea, Catherine finds out a fact of life she has missed during her childhood. Aunt Kelmarsh was Catherine's mother's lover. She had married twice, but in between, Catherine's mother had claimed her heart. So Catherine now has time to think about the fact that women can, in fact, fall in love with other women. And she also decides she wishes to pursue this with Lucy, who she knows has had a female lover in the past. Quote, Catherine was going to have to go about this carefully, one step at a time, inviting rather than pursuing always leaving Lucy the chance to retreat or reject. It would sting, but that was nothing. Catherine valued Lucy's freedom in this as much as her own. I want more. I understand if you don't. 
Lucy, on the other hand, has been entertaining these thoughts, but has just known that Catherine was not quite there yet. Quote, it ought to have been agonizing, living and working in close quarters alongside a woman so beautiful and yet so unattainable. But Lucy's heart, newly mended, was prepared to bask in any sensation that was not the sharp pain of loss. So unrequited fascination for her benefactress came not as a trial, but rather as a pleasurable seasoning to any day's difficult work. Now, Catherine is really skilled at embroidery. In fact, she often sits in the library with Lucy and just embroiders while Lucy works. To begin her idea of pursuing Lucy, she sets out to make make her a beautiful shawl. It is themed around the universe and features comets and tiny glass beaded stars. She gives it to Lucy, and Lucy is amazed at the gift. She asks Catherine about her skill, and Catherine tells her that her mother taught her much of what she knows. This conversation, the viewing of a sampler book, and a page that reminds Lucy of things seen and said at Aunt Kelmarsh's house, turns a light switch on for Lucy. Is Catherine trying to seduce her? So she asks Catherine if she can kiss her. Please, is the response. Instant chemistry, my friends. Mm-hmm. However, Lucy knows this is new territory for Catherine, so leaves it at that. At dinner, Lucy wears her new shawl, and Catherine is inspired and a bit courageous. She invites Lucy to view her own embroidery sampler. It's in her room. <laughs> you know, we had another book where it was like, you want to see something in my room? <laughs> and we talked about how it felt very like teenager. Yeah. This didn't. This definitely was like both parties knew exactly what they were saying, and Mm -hmm. it was very cute. Yes. Agreed. So anyhow, this – you know what? Actually, I think that was when we guessed it on another podcast, but – anyhow, so it's it's in the lost files for any of our (laughs) our podcast listeners. So anyhow, the sampler is there and beautiful and chronicles all of Catherine's trips abroad. Lucy is amazed, and they speak a little bit more about what it is that they are pursuing. Lucy kisses Catherine again, but when she tries to take it a step further, Catherine seems shocked and not in a good way. Quote, It wasn't too fast for me, but perhaps it was too fast for you? Catherine fought to loosen the tangled knots of her feelings, then huffed in frustration. I don't know. Lucy took Catherine's hands, gently rubbing them between her own. Then we stop. And they do stop. Lucy tells Catherine that they can go at whatever pace she prefers. There is no right or wrong. Lucy is diligent about taking it slow. Even when she gets Catherine down to her camise and stockings, it takes two more nights for everything to get off. However, once they are skin to skin, there is no more slowing down. And we have encounter number one, with both ladies getting their orgasm. A bit later, the ladies end up at tea with Mr. Frampton. Turns out that he has parted ways with Mr. Wilby and is no longer working on the translation at all. Mr. Wilby's uncle took up the mantle of financing the translation after Catherine pulled her funds, so Mr. Hawley sided with Mr. Wilby in all matters of interpretation. And that was the final straw for Frampton. And after hearing this news, Lucy is furious on Mr. Frampton's behalf. Quote, Lucy managed to keep her temper until Mr. Frampton had departed, whereupon she set down her teacup with a vicious click and began pacing the length of the parlor. How dare Mr. Hawley presume to know what's best for everyone, she cried. How dare he think that science should be limited by his own stunted imagination. This is also a boon because it means that the society translation will be late, meaning Lucy can easily get hers published first. Catherine and Lucy later attend the Royal Art Exhibition in order to meet up with Lucy's brother Stephen and his friends. While there, Stephen tells Catherine that he would love for Lucy to marry his friend Peter Violet. Catherine is a bit taken aback. Part of the reason she liked the idea of getting involved with Lucy was that Lucy could not marry her. Her late husband really ruined her to the whole institution. She never imagined that Lucy might choose to marry and leave her. Luckily, They do discuss this concern, and Lucy simply states, Why would I go anywhere? She whispered, her mouth hot against Catherine's temple. Everything I want is right here, because you are here. And this leads us to encounter number two. 
But the next day, they go to Griffin's print shop to talk with them about publishing the translation. They see Mrs. Griffin and talk business with her husband. Turns out that Catherine is a shrewd negotiator and makes sure that Lucy will see a good portion of any profits from the book. Lucy then solves a household problem by suggesting to Catherine that Eliza, the butler's daughter, be sent to the publisher for an apprenticeship since she excels at drawing and it would be a better future for her. Shortly after this trip to Griffin's, Lucy gets a note from Mr. Hawley asking her to tea. Both ladies hope it is for an apology, but assume there's a catch. There is. Lucy goes for tea, and after receiving a lukewarm apology, is asked to come help Mr. Willoughby with the translation. Or more accurately, have the Society publish her translation, and they'll put Willoughby's name on it. Oh, and she will not be invited to be a member of the Society. <clears throat> well, Lucy walks out saying, if Mr. Holly wishes to give her a fellowship, he knows where to reach her. And when she returns to Catherine, she tells the whole story. Catherine was very anxious to hear how it all went and is proud that Lucy was able to stand her ground. This also leads to a heartfelt, I love you from both women. Finally, the time has come and Lucy's translation of the Mechanic Celeste has debuted. To great success! It's the talk of the town! Because Lucy opted to sign it L. Michelney, it is a great scandal when it comes out she is a woman. How does this information come out? Why, her helpful brother, of course! Quote, Stephen had sold the world a false image of Lucy, and he had done it for money and fame. And so the wider world learned that El Nochelny was a woman, and an unmarried one at that. Now, people do not shun her work, but it does cause, cause a lot of drama, so she and Catherine opt to visit her home in Lyme for a month to get away from it all. The trip to Lyme is very restorative, but it does bring about one little hitch. Catherine meets Pris, and instead of reassuring her of Lucy's affections, it gives her a bit of pause. The biggest takeaway of the trip is that Lucy urges Catherine to think of herself as an artist. Her embroidery is an art in and of itself. Catherine should embrace it. Catherine takes this to heart and then says maybe she should approach Griffins about a pattern book. She inferred that they could use something original. After a month in Lyme, the pair return to London and begin life again. Catherine is putting together sketches for a pattern book and Lucy is becoming a bit more independent. Quote, some of the noble scions who'd approved Lucy's book had not minded to learn it was the work of a woman and had issued invitations to tea or to certain interesting lectures around the city. So Lucy was growing a small social circle of her own in town, quite separate from the gentlemen naturalists, eccentrics, and dilettantes who made up the bulk of society's ranks. And apologies, listeners, there are a lot of children playing outside my window, so hopefully you won't hear too much of it. But I uh, don't have the heart to go ask the children to be quiet in the cul-de-sac. <laughs> the wrench comes in the form of Stephen Milchelny. He comes to apologize to Lucy. He realizes he was being an ass and should not have shown the portrait. He was just thinking about the money, in part to help his sister not be at the mercy of others. Having a patron is a necessity in their line of work, but there are also inherent problems to the relationship. Quote, The worst patrons, they prey on desperation, her brother said. Your safety lies in being able to walk away. And while Lucy does not think Catherine is this type of person, it does give her something to mull over. Catherine senses this change in Lucy, but is unsure where it came from. Is she losing Lucy? This worry is then exacerbated by the fact that Pris writes to Lucy saying they should meet for tea since she's in London for a short time. Catherine accidentally opened the letter, like truly accidentally. She'd been opening letters from unknown persons to weed out hate mail, and she forgot that Pris's married name was Winlock. However, she realizes her error immediately, but still reads the letter. Now she is convinced Lucy will go back to Pris. Lucy does not help anything by reading the letter and telling Catherine that Pris had written in code to express her love. This is where our lover's challenge comes in. They cannot get married. There is no assurance that the other person has to stay. Quote, you could never sit back and let the official pieces of paper do the work for you. Oh no, you had to choose the other person over and over again, every time. What's worse, you had to trust them to choose you. It was horribly frightening, as though you started every day by reminding your hearts to keep beating. Lucy tells Catherine that she is going to meet Pris to nip her hopes in the bud. 
However, Catherine is not sure if this is the outcome and steals herself for the fact that Lucy will be leaving her house with her former lover. While Lucy is meeting with Pris, Catherine goes to Griffin's to present her pattern book. It is met with great success, and they are even interested in some of her more fantastical sketches. Catherine is floored, quote, She ought to have paid more attention to her own self before now. She ought to have allowed herself to want things. However, wanting led to one thing she'd never expected. She hadn't quite known how until Lucy, but she'd wanted Lucy, and wanting Lucy had led to wanting everything else. On the other side of town, Lucy is busy telling Pris that she is through with her. Pris is not taking it well. She does not like to be thwarted. However, Lucy is adamant that what they had is over and she has moved on. When Catherine returns, she is relieved to see that Lucy has not left. But the unsaid words between them are driving them apart. Why can't people just talk to each other? Yeah, this is a... This is a bit of a a moment that these ladies could have had a conversation. However, Lucy tries to talk about it, but does a poor job, and they basically break up. Quote, I value my choices, Lucy countered, and I value people who respect them. Stephen never did. Pris never did. Nobody really. She stopped and turned to face the Countess. Until you. You trusted me to find my own way, even if where I was going didn't look likely or even possible to get to. Something warm trickled in and washed away some of the hurt. And now you're forging a new path of your own, different from mine. Lucy leaves for the night to go to a lecture after this basic breakup when something causes a stir. While she's walking to her friend Mr. Edwards' lab, she notices a bunch of people smirking and whispering behind her back. It turns out Mr. Wilby, endorsed by Mr. Hawley, has published an opinion piece on how Lucy has just signed her name to her father's work. She is outraged, but Mr. Frampton, the guy who walked out on the translation, since he's an ally, tells her he's been in communication actually with Oleron and believes there is a way out of this mess. He's convinced Mr. Hawley to invite Lucy and Oleron to the annual society symposium to debate the translation. And Lucy is shocked and very concerned by how Mr. Frampton believes that it will all work out. He says he has a hunch, but it's too early to tell her more. Quote, he sighed. If I am right, it puts Oleron in a position that is at best awkward, at worst horribly vulnerable, with respect to the society. They've already done most of the harm they can to you. I am trying to help correct that without opening anyone else to similar abuse. It's a very fine line to have to walk, I admit. Lucy heads back to Catherine's place, and she is on a mission. A mission to look for all the female scientists society has pushed aside for decades. Catherine, hearing the noise in the library, goes to investigate. She finds Lucy, who tells her about Mr. Wilby's letter, Mr. Frampton's supposed solution, and her discovery that women have been trying to be recognized by the polite society in their archives. Quote, I remember what you wrote, Catherine said. Nothing in the universe stands alone. Everything is connected in real mathematical provable ways across the span of the entire cosmos. As long as we live, we influence one another. You and these women you've rediscovered, but also you and me. Yes, this is what reunites our lovers together, and it does indeed lead to makeup sex and encounter number three. And now the last bit of the book speeds along quite quickly. So, Lucy spends the months leading up to the symposium studying everything Oleron speaks about in the Mechanique Celeste. Catherine reaches out to find every living woman who was dismissed by the society and to discover what they're doing. And then, the night of the symposium arrives. Lucy and Catherine arrive at the venue to find Mr. Frampton with a dark-skinned lady, Genevieve Marie Oleron. Uh-huh. <laughs> Lucy checks her own bias for a second. Quote, she was flooded with chagrin at one simple telling fact. The possibility of Oleron being anything other than a white-skinned man had simply not occurred to her. Dinner commences and then the debate happens. Mr. Hawley is forced to introduce a woman who was granted honorary status as a fellow in the membership, which was obviously before they knew she was a woman, but... Anyhow, so Lucy stands her ground and is even floored when it turns out that Oleron found an error in her own work after reading Lucy's translation. 
Lucy's work is now vindicated, and after the debate, she meets again with Mr. Hawley, who asks a very important question, quote, Do you intend to put your name forward for fellowship in the society? Lucy nodded, holding his gaze. Will I have your support? My dear girl, Mr. Hawley began his usual chastising tone, then seemed to catch himself. You will, he said instead. His lips twisted up, but when his eyes met hers again, his gaze was clear and steady. Though I may argue against many of your conclusions. Have I ever demanded you shouldn't, Lucy countered? The next day, Lucy is still running off the high of the night before. However, there is a looming question. What is she going to do next? Catherine has the answer, but it does mean that the two of them will be tied together kind of permanently. After contacting all the women who were looked over by the polite society and noting that many of them were still pursuing their line of study, Catherine proposes they do scientific publishings to show the world what these women can do. Griffins will do the publishing, but Catherine and Lucy will be the ones putting it all together. Quote, For once, Lucy wasn't the one crying because she was too blissfully, incredibly happy to cry. Catherine, she breathed, ask me truly. Catherine looked up, her face shining with hope and love and joy. I am asking you to stay with me for the rest of our lives. I am asking you to join me in making this world a better place insofar as we are able. We cannot stand up in a church and make vows, but we can stand up publicly and declare that we are important. Together. The end. Yay. Well, shall we adjourn to the parlor? We shall. So today, I wanted to remind you all about our email subscription list. Our email subscribers are the first to know what we're reading each month. Plus, you get all sorts of extras from our fabulous authors that join us. So now's a great time to sign up. Uh, And you will also get some fun extras. So you can subscribe by going to bit.ly slash strumpet subscribe. And there's also a link to that in the show notes. If you'd like to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at T and Strumpets. That's T as in Tom and as in Nancy Strumpets. At Facebook and Pinterest slash T and Strumpets. And YouTube if you search our name. And finally, we ask that you maybe rate, review, and tell a friend. Reviews on Apple Podcasts or Facebook or anywhere else that you can review us really help other listeners find the podcast. And word of mouth is really one of the best ways that podcasts get found. So if you like what you're hearing, we'd love it if you would spread the word. Hi, I'm Laura Von Holt from the Mermaid Podcast, part of the Frolic Podcast Network. The Mermaid Podcast is, you guessed it, all about mermaids. I cover everything from mermaid legend and history to mermaids in pop culture, movies, and TV. My guests include mermaid experts, mermaid historians, mermaid authors, mermaid charities, mermaid tail makers, and even professional mermaids. Yes, being a mermaid is a real job. It turns out that talking about mermaids is kind of like playing that Kevin Bacon game. You start with mermaids, and within six degrees or less, you end up connecting mermaids to almost any other topic in the world. Things you never would have thought of all lead back to mermaids. Like religion, and mummies, and a few English queens. So, whether you have legs or fins, are a mermaid queen or a mermaid at heart, the Mermaid Podcast has something for you. You can find us at mermaidpodcast.com and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. All right, so let's talk about the Ladies' Guide to Celestial Mechanics. Yeah! Yes, I, I, I can go first. That's fine. I liked a lot of things about this book. However, yes. as a whole, 
I liked it. And that's about the extent of it. I I understand. I think that there were some lulls in this book that didn't make it feel quite as tight as some of the other books we've been reading recently. Um, I don't know if you felt the same way. Yeah. I The things that I really loved about this book were the stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I also really loved her writing. Oh, I'm oh, sorry. Was- I should say the story. I also really loved her writing. The writing was uh, totally quotable. Like I yes. only put in a handful of the quotes that I actually highlighted because there were so many that were so good. I really loved the writing. Yeah. And I mean, it was just like I was – I felt like it was a page turner in the beginning because I had to know what was going to uh-huh. happen with Lucy's book. Yeah, I just had to know. Like I was so enamored in that. And I think – that maybe was for me where I was more interested in what was going to happen with Lucy's book than I really was interested in Lucy and Catherine. Agreed. And I found I loved I loved all the side characters and I wanted to yes. know more. Like Aunt Kel Marsh was this total character and she has these – I thought Aunt Kel Marsh was going to be one of the characters in Wash with Widows. Yeah, I did too. She's not. No, Sorry, she's not. Spoiler for that. She's not. She's not. But she's she's quite fun. And um, there's just like she, yes, she's a lot of good tips. But Mr. Frampton is also very interesting. Yeah, Because I want a Frampton book. He kind of comes <laughs> off as unassuming. And Lucy and Catherine kind of like have a hard time reading his vibe because he's not very smiley or chatty. He's just kind of hanging out around, you know, being there. And then it turns mm-hmm. out that he's like affronted on their behalf and needs to help Lucy and is going to all these lengths and his very encouraging of Lucy and her translation. And so Mr. Frampton was his own unique character that I loved. Oh, and Peter Violet, who I mentioned briefly, but like Lucy has a little conversation with Peter Violet and I really wanted to know more about Peter Violet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was interesting too. Definitely. So I, I thought she did like great characters, great writing, a really unique, interesting plot. Mm-hmm. How about that plot twist at the end? Yeah, no, I loved that. That was fantastic. And I mean, I loved the quote also about like, Lucy checked her, you know, own bias because it was literally like, I'm sorry, like, I felt like it was Olivia saying, like, y'all know you didn't, th- you didn't see this coming either. A hundred percent. Lucy was like, huh, I'm over here trying to be like, women can do everything. And I never even thought a woman could have written this. Like, what the hell? Yes. Yes. So, but again, that's the patriarchy for you. So. Exactly. We just, that's just what happens. Seriously. So, I I I thought that it got like a little slow and then of course like any any listener knows us and so they will know that you and I both did not love the misunderstanding moment that they had in the book. No, and I um I felt it was very superfluous like cuz it was resolved very quickly but once again yeah. it was they were both kind of like in their own headspace and then they're like well then I guess we better break up. Yeah, it was very weird. And it it came along so suddenly, I think. And it just felt like I didn't feel like their relationship needed conflict in that moment. I felt like all of the trials of what they were going through with getting the book published and her reputation and just getting rid of Pris like once and for all, I thought that they'd had enough trials. So I kind of was surprised by it. Yeah, no. And I... 100% surprised by it. And it's interesting, too, because you'd think the main conflict is, like, Lucy feels like Catherine doesn't trust her because she read her – like, she read the letter when she shouldn't have. But Lucy even acknowledges that that should be what she's upset about, but it's not what she's upset about. Like – Yeah, and I I also, like, when Lucy comes out of that meeting with Pris and the butler is, like – such a doll to her and I was like I just that's in my favorite quotes I'm just gonna like I'm gonna read it for you because it's just such a great scene I love it excellent it is it is so great so so when Lucy comes out of the meeting with Pris and the butler like gives her his support um and you just think like everything's gonna be right like they're about to have a conversation where the two of them you know finally air it all out Mm -hmm. and really say like and solidify their relationship and instead they both like 180 and think the other thing. And it was like, well, I didn't see this coming. Why is it? But thank goodness it resolves really pretty quickly. Yes, it does. Like Lucy goes out, has something happen to her, and then she comes back all on a fire and Catherine's like, I'm here for you. 
Yes. And so like, I, I kind of forgave it because it was so it was done so quickly, you know, but, but yeah, so I think like, I, I was, I just was like, I have to know what's happening with her book. And I, I was so into that. I kind of looked at their relationship as kind of inevitable. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, well, these two are going to be together and that's great for them. And I'm excited for them. But can you tell me more about the book? I want to know <laughs> about so their next adventure. I want to know about all the women they're going to publish yes. and like all the studies I, of women gonna they're going to publish. Series? Like, I want to know more about that. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm just fascinated by it for sure. So, um, and and I did love that. I loved that they had this project that was going to link them together for a long time. And that was kind of what they used symbolically to be Mm -hmm. a a tie between the two of them. And I I loved that. Mm -hmm. I thought that that was really a cool ending. No, I did too. I really liked how they worked that around because it was, you know, Catherine didn't propose they get married, but they marry themselves in business and like that's okay that works <laughs> and progressive for them i felt like it fit them with their kind of you know feminist uh, you know just everything about them you know i felt like that was really the kind of a perfect thing for the two of them agreed so shall we talk about our heroines yes we shall now lucy i really liked her she was a go-getter and she kind of, you know, was like, oh, what am I? She didn't have lulls of like, like she didn't have lulls where she was just too busy questioning herself to figure out what she wanted mm-hmm. to do. Does that make sense? She was very ambitious, like she, as the quote said. Yes, she was <laughs> ambitious, but she also wasn't afraid of like, she kind of would like acknowledge the hurdles thrown into her, but they weren't, they wouldn't phase her. She, oh, I know what it was. She never had a crisis of self. She knew who yes. she was. Versus Catherine, on the other hand, never really had like a crisis of like she kind of was like always slightly having a crisis of self. Well, yeah, she had a lot more challenging her than Lucy did in this moment. You know, like I think I think it was also that was an interesting juxtaposition with our characters. Mm -hmm. We have this really headstrong, young, sure of herself woman. And then we have slightly older, more mature woman going through a renaissance, you know, Mm -hmm. of of self. And I thought that that was kind of interesting. You know, they balanced each other. Like Catherine said in the ambition uh, quote, like she is the kind of person to like help that ambitious person along and stop the major catastrophes (laughs) from from befalling them. But yeah, I I agree. And I, I, I'm, I'm guessing what you were going to say about this, which is that, you know, you kind of preferred Lucy over Catherine because watching someone in the crisis of self or the renaissance, shall we call it, is a little bit – it's a little harder uh, to watch. So it's not as fun. No, and I – and it's – it wasn't as – it's not as fun, but also I felt like there was some – there were some issues that Catherine, like, internally, like, thought about that brought up Mm – she brought up with herself that I never really felt – did get resolved and so I felt like she never quite like usually by the end of the book we want our main characters to like finish their renaissance of self and I never felt that Catherine really truly did I felt there was a lot of things that were still unanswered and I don't and like maybe that just attests to the strength of Catherine's character in the sense that like she can still have unknowns but she'll take her known and like go forward with it even with the unknowns looming on the horizon she's like i will face them with this person because i know she's there for me like maybe that's what yeah we're trying to do no for sure i also um really liked a lot of things about both of these characters i think it's really interesting how olivia Waite kind of chose these very distinct and unique and specialized quote-unquote professions for these Mm -hmm. women like obviously lucy is an astronomer but Catherine is an embroideress, shall we say, um, and an artist, right? Mm-hmm. And but embroidery is a very specific type of art, and I I, I love embroidery personally. I'm not very good at it, but I, I dabble, <laughs> and, and I find it to be fascinating. And so, just like listening to her describe all of Catherine's stuff, like made me kind of really identify with Catherine a little bit more throughout the book than it, when I when I was pulling away from her. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so that kind of informed my opinion. But we've we've gotten far away from the the realm of ratings. So, yes. <laughs> so what would you rate Lucy then? Or do you have more to say on Lucy first? No, I don't have more to say on Lucy. I'm gonna give Lucy like a six. Oh, okay. Yeah, I like her. 
Like, she's good, but I don't have very strong feelings. Okay. Interesting. I'm going to give Lucy a seven. Okay. I think she's great. Um, I I really liked her. I think she's fun. Um, I think she's got a good head on her shoulders. And I liked her tenacity. Yes. So to me, she felt like a seven. Okay. Maybe what I'm missing is that lack of depth. Like, I felt like even though Catherine was having her crisis of self, Catherine had a lot of depth versus Lucy. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't feel like she had the same amount of depth. And I like depth in a character. That makes sense. I can see I can see that interpretation. So then how did you feel about Catherine? Also a six. Gotcha. But it's because I felt there were so many unresolved issues. Like she could have been higher, but unresolved issues. So six. I liked Catherine, but for me, it was less about the unresolved issues, but more about feeling like I got a little bit more of development and arc from Lucy than I did from Catherine. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I think her – her hesitation, there was there was some hesitation in moments where I think like during their misunderstanding moment, Catherine's was even more out of context than Lucy's was. Fair. So to me, she's a 6.5. Okay. I think she's just a little uh, not quite as strong as Lucy. Um, but I also just still really liked them. Mm-hmm. Um, they just I, I think they just didn't really ring with me. Yeah, that's fair. And that's part of how we do our ratings is just how do they ring with us? Yeah, so exactly. <laughs> This is all an arbitrary system, guys. (laughs) So arbitrary. But we love doing it. So next, we're on to our favorite quote. Which I've already said, this book is very quotable. Mm -hmm, It sure is. So, um, Zoe, it looks like you're finding yours. So I'm going to go first. And I have two quotes. One is a scene I just really liked. And the other one is just a, a a quote I just thought was really fantastic. So the quote I thought was really fantastic was Catherine was talking about men and these scientists and like their lofty goals and how they're often not as lofty as they they're not as lofty of people as they think they are. Mm -hmm. So but they were so passionate about being noble that I mistook the passion for the nobleness. Ooh, that is so smart. Mm hmm. Yes. And then this was um, Zoe mentioned a scene where like the household is really supporting Lucy. And this is the scene that really just like warmed your heart. And it was Pris leapt forward, a cutting remark upon those rosy lips. But the words died unheard. Brinkworth was waiting in the hallway with her bonnet and gloves at the ready, a perfectly helpful expression on his face and a dagger's glint in his eyes. Ooh, yeah, it's such a good scene. That whole scene and Brinkworth, oh, I love it so much. No, I do, and I love it. And something we didn't touch on in the synopsis was that the household is actually like, like Catherine's lady's maid finds out about her and Lucy very quickly and is actually more concerned about like, she was more concerned that Catherine was getting ready to fire her because she was bringing up Eliza Brinkworth's daughter very quickly. So she's like, oh my God, I'm going to get fired. And Catherine was like, oh, no, you're not going to get fired. Like, I was worried that you were upset about, like, what you saw. And she's like, oh, no, whatever you want to do, I don't care. So good. Uh, so I have a weird quote to share. It's just, like, a bit of writing that I really liked. And and it just sat with me. And so it's just at the beginning, and it's, like, a little description. And so it says, quote, Catherine's toilet was a treasury of scent pots, powders, pomades, and stray pieces of jewelry, a perfect dragon's hoard. Catherine certainly felt like a dragon, irritable and scaly. There had been no call to be sour to the girl at dinner last night. Anyhow, I just loved this like idea of yes. her sitting down at her dressing table and seeing all her shiny things and making her feel like a dragon, like irritable <laughs> and scaly. And I just thought, oh, it was just this moment of like, oh, so that good. That was so a I, very good moment. You could really just like feel it in place. Like... Yeah. And I love that was so much of Olivia's writing is like that. So it was really a joy to read. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So Zoe, let's talk about our steaminess. Let's. And our encounter count. Yes. We have that too. How many encounters did we have? We had three. A, a perfectly respectable number. Yes. So the way that I felt about this is, again, I was kind of more invested in Lucy's book publishing than their romance so much. Mm-hmm. Like I was I was perfectly I thought they had plenty of chemistry. I was excited for them to be in love, but I didn't necessarily find it that steamy. And maybe it was the slow burn. 
um, you know, the, taking it slow for Catherine. But sometimes that can be very sexy. You know, we, we had that in Band Sinister where it was like, you know, exploration, mm-hmm. one person learning how this works. Um, I I liked the description. I actually found the description of how much time they took to be more steamy than when, like, the clothes finally came off. Like, I expected it to be, like, this electric moment, and yet I didn't I didn't quite feel that way. So, yeah, I thought this was, like, a nice cup of tea, totally ready to drink with, like, a spoonful of sugar in it. I would say the same minus the sugar. Not, not, not that sweet for you? Not that sweet for me. Yeah, I, I thought it I thought it bordered on on sweet, you know, whereas it rather than it being like super steamy, I thought it was like g- verging towards sweetness. So Yeah, I get what you, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. That that's that's what I meant mm-hmm. by it. So, I mean, so yeah, it's it's uh not the steamiest book we've read, but uh hey, they can't all be <laughs> steamy and that's okay. Sometimes you don't want steamy. I mean, like if you want a great plot and great writing, this is the book for you. <laughs> Yes. So our feminist recap. I mean, do we even need to? I mean, (laughs) I don't even think we need to talk about it. Feminist all the way. I can point you to a few quotes that we talked about in the synopsis if you were not paying attention. Oh, but yeah, man, wooey. Yeah, some great, some great stuff here. And I, I, I kind of touched on it earlier, but I really liked the way that Olivia had us feel it, right? She wrote those passages about the men saying things like that. And it just raises your blood pressure going like, no, I'm going to, we're going to rise up together with you, Lucy, and we're going to freaking fight the patriarchy and show them that we're better than this. But not only was this feminist, but it was also inclusive. And yes, well, the antagonists weren't, but all the protagonists, like the protagonists and their like side protagonists, all of them were like super supportive. They're like, we're going to lift you up. And it's actually really cute because Lucy and Catherine are part of this book club. And then as a group, they decide they'll read Lucy's book for the book club, you know, to support Aww. Lucy. And then all the women are like, we had trouble. So I'm like, look at you women supporting other women. Like you just want to lift your friend up. And then they're like, but we couldn't find it because it's been sold out everywhere. Aww. Yeah, no, it's great. Super great. So we're now at the end of our uh, ratings and we have our final book rating. And I'm going to go first, if I if I may. You may. So I think that I've expressed my feelings about this book. I think uh, I was more into the the plot than the, you know, the subplot mm-hmm. than the romance plot. Yeah. Um, but I still had a really good time reading it. I thought it was super well written. I thought it was super feminist. I thought obviously very inclusive. And this was the first female-female romance that I've read. So fun. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm going to give it a seven. I think it's a good book. There you go. I think that's great. I'm going to give it a 6.5. Fair enough. Yes. I think it's it's got lots of things – but it just was like, I think for me, it was just, it was missing that hint of steamy that I needed. I think with all of it, if I just had that like steam now and again, I think it would have been like a different ballgame. But I feel, yeah, I get that. I, I think I just loved uh, the the plot of the book so much. I was so into it that I, it, it bumped it up for me. And it was a fun, it was a really fun read. And I really enjoyed finding a new author who's writing that I love. So that's exciting. No, her writing is beautiful. And I love the, just the, and even reading the synopsis for her next book, which we talked about, the care and feeding of wasp, waspish widows, which we mentioned in our like books to yes. look out for for 2020. You know, I was I reread the synopsis. I read I read the synopsis of that one, and I just was like, I love just the themes that she comes up with for the plot. Like they're so new yes. and they're so interesting, and she really does a lot of research. Like the amount of research she did for Lucy, and even just like the different embroidery things she was talking about, I Seriously. I was so fascinated by it. There was so much research that went into this book that, I mean, fabulous. Um, honestly, I can't wait to ask her about all that. <laughs> Excellent. I know. I want to I wanna hear more. And we are going to get to talk to her, which is so exciting. We're so excited to talk to her. But that is not next week. As I said, that was a preview of what's to come later in the month. So Kelsey, what are we reading next time? Okay. So we're actually not reading a book next time. What? But, but Zoe said Olivia was until later this month. No, but I'm sorry, but we have someone else fabulous to share with you. We had the most 
fantastic. Oh, I, I'm looking for new adjectives. Fantastic, awesome, amazing, like conversation with Cat Sebastian. Now, you'll remember yes, Cat Sebastian when we read, what, The Soldier's Scoundrel? That was it, correct? With Jeff and Will from the Big Gay yes, Fiction Podcast. Yes, Jeff and Will from the Big, Big Gay Fiction Podcast. And they, they're they like 10 out of 10. This is fabulous. And Zoe and I were like, oh my God, the steaminess level in that book. Woo! Yes. We loved it. And so we got to talk with Kat Sebastian about all kinds of things. And we could have just talked forever. Like, it was so much fun. Forever. (laughs) Such a fun afternoon. We can't wait to share that with you. And that is next week. So thank you all so much for listening. And join us next time for our interview with Kat Sebastian. And may all your ever afters end happily. Tea and Strumpets is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. It is Muchelny, not Mulchaney. You didn't mix those, didn't you? Did you? Oh, I thought it was Mulch. Honestly, when I get a word like this in my head, I just say it differently every time and I add the extra letters in. Like, I really had no idea how to say it. All right, let me just – but did you spell it right for sure is what I'm wondering. Oh, I did. I looked it up for sure. Okay, that was what I was wondering. So it's it's not what I saw. So it's Michelney. Mm-hmm. Michelney. Okay, so Lucy Michelney. So if you like what you're hearing, we'd love it if you would spread the word. And if you hate what you're hearing today because there are screaming children in the background, I'm so sorry. There's so many of them out there. I don't know why there are so many. There's like 15 children in my cul-de-sac. It is quarantine times. I don't understand what's going on, Kelsey. Oh. I Obviously, people can't control their children. That's what's happening. <laughs> I think I think that one of my neighbors that their families are visiting uh, each other, uh, and so maybe they're you know they're extending their quarantine circle to their families. Understand. It does look very much like they're all family, but it's a lot. It's a lot of kids, <laughs> and they're kicking a soccer ball around. So it's going to be a test to my editing skills. Okay, you got this. Anyhow.